Snap Studios. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Snappers, I'm excited to introduce you to a new force in storytelling, a dear friend of mine, Katie Levin. You're going to hear her later on this year on Snap Judgment Live, but this story, it's about one of those times when you try to do something good. Please do note that some of the names and identifying details in this story have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. Snap Judgment. So when I told people that I wanted to be a social worker, um, there was this thing that people would sometimes say. Um, they would say, oh, you're going to be a baby snatcher. And for many social workers, that is that is not true. Social workers do a lot of other things. Uh, but when I started in social work, um, that was exactly the kind of social worker um, I was going to be. Um, I was going to be the kind that sometimes had to take kids out of their homes. The story is that I signed a deal, which was that in exchange for a stipend that was going to pay for my grad school, I would work for Child Protective Services for two years afterwards. Um, and Child Protective Services, CPS, those are the people who sometimes take babies. I mean, I was totally unprepared. And I probably possessed very few of the skills needed to do it. So my first year of grad school was split. You, you split up your week between being in school where you're pretending to be a therapist with your classmates and your professors watch you pretend to be a therapist and then tell you how to give a better therapist performance. And then the other half of the time you're at your uh, internship, which is where you play therapist, but the people are real and you are pretending into their real lives and real problems. It's just one of those things you have to do to do it. So you can't practice being a therapist without being a therapist. It's like being a doctor. You have to have your first surgery at some point. You have to start at the beginning. And it's terrifying, but there's no way to skip to the middle. My internship was in a part of town um, that was well known for, for a lot of gang violence, for underfunded schools, um, for being a tough area. What I would essentially do in all of my sessions is do my best impression of my own therapist. She was very good at nodding. She was very good at sitting and saying nothing. And I would ask people, when in doubt, I would, you know, ask them, hmm, how do you feel about that? This was a no-fee clinic. They paid zero dollars for the services they received. The work was meaningful. I was, I was in people's 
lives and learning about them and sometimes maybe even being useful. Um, but for the most part, I felt like a fraud. Um, anything good that happened felt like happenstance or like something someone would have arrived at on their own. Um, and so I did a lot of dressing up for the part. I got a lot of new, like, baby's first real job clothes beforehand. I had some real stupid blazers. I had a, a real stupid tan blazer and a navy pencil skirt that I would rock maybe 30% of the time. A variety of, um, like, sweater t-shirts. So I was almost done with my first year there. I had maybe a month left to go, and my supervisor who who assigned us our cases told me she she had one last client she wanted me to see. Oh, you're going to be out of here in a month. That's perfect. This little girl's not going to take that long. Just see her for a bit. She was, she had a pretty serious face. She was a sturdy kid, um, and she had one of those faces that you can already see what it's going to look like when she grows up. You know, at 11, she looked probably how she was going to look at 40. So she was mandated by the courts to come to treatment. She had gotten into a situation that I can sort of but not totally tell you about. So she was living with her dad and her stepmom. And they took her to the doctor for some routine visit. And while she's talking with the doctor, she says something about her stepmom like, she scrapes on me. And the doctor, who is a mandated reporter, decides this sounds enough like maybe it's child abuse that that he needs to make a report. And so he reports the child abuse to Child Protective Services. And what happens is pretty routine. Child Protective Services comes out. They chat with everybody in the house. She's got to talk to everybody and say, we'll let you know if anything further is going to happen. But rather than things sort of ending there, what happens is that her father is is sort of so upset that this little girl invited this this investigation into the family that he really beats her. And it's not a question mark anymore. Somebody at church actually sees the bruises. They call CPS. CPS is is back at the house in no time. And, and it's a very different kind of visit when they come back. Um, so they are grabbing this girl, taking her out of the house, not asking a lot of questions, not checking things to be cautious. They are um, removing a kid from what from what seems like a, a physically violent situation. They are grabbing her. They are hauling her out before she can grab pajamas or hug anyone goodbye. So by the time this little girl comes to me, um, the court has put her with her maternal grandmother. And it's a really different situation being at grandma's house than it was at, at her house. She and grandma um, literally don't speak the same language. And, you know, this little girl used to have her own room at her house with her dad and her stepmom. And now she's sharing a room with grandma and often ends up having to share a bed with grandma. She hates her grandma's food. She hates her new school. She hates um, these supervised visits she has to go on and the lady who, who comes to watch them, watch her interact with her dad. And so we talk about all of that, but, but more than anybody is the sort of villain in this, 
situation as the the villain in the story of this little girl's life. We talk about the social worker who took her out of her house. As we're drawing each other pictures and and chatting about how much she wants to go home, um, I I am the only one of the two of us who knows that I am about to be the exact kind of social worker as the one who took her out of her house. On our last day, we we spend a little time talking about saying goodbye to each other. Um, I tell her how I'll be sad to not see her anymore. And for the first time, she asks me where I'm going next. And she actually wants to know what my what my next job will be. She looked up from her drawing and and she was she was serious, but she was interested and 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 her eyes were curious as she was looking at me. So I decided to tell her the truth. I told her I, that when I left this job, my next job would be um, the kind of social worker who takes kids out of their houses. She didn't move. She kept her eyes steadily on me, and, and she said, huh, how do you feel about that? <laughs> I was so impressed and also terrified by this. So I told her that I had a lot of different feelings about it, that part of me thought it was a really good and important job and that I'd be helping keep kids safe and that part of me worried that I would be hurting families, that I'd be hurting moms and dads and kids. Then I asked her if there was anything she wanted me to know. I asked her if there was anything that she wished that the social worker who took her from her house knew. She doesn't just tell me, like, I don't know. And, and go back to what she's drawing. She tells me to just let a kid take their time. She says, you know how I wish I had all my things from my house. Let a kid get her bunny if she sleeps with a bunny. And if she has brothers and sisters there, let her, let her give them a hug goodbye and, and hug her mom and dad and just let her take her time. So I tell her that I will. And that was the end of our session and the end of our time together. She went back to her grandmother's house and I started my work at CPS. I thought about that conversation a lot. I felt like it was something I could do. I felt like I could be good to my word on that and, and let a kid take their time and not add to their trauma. Yeah. Then I started my, my next year's internship at CPS in the emergency response division. I was knocking on a lot of doors and asking strangers a lot of personal questions. I started carrying crayons in my purse, and I spent a lot of time sort of sitting on floors of apartments with kids waiting to find out what was going to happen next. Pretty much from the beginning, I know that it's not going to be a fit for me. You know, almost as soon as I start at CPS, I, I can see the the burnout and the sadness and the secondary trauma that the other workers are going through. Um, and I can also see people who are made to do this job, people who are beautiful, patient, hard-working, child-protecting angels. 
But I know that if I stay, I'm not going to be in that amazing camp. That is not going to be what happens to me. Uh, So I, after six weeks, I quit. And in the same conversation where I tell my supervisor I'm going to quit, I tell her that before I go, I want to go on a removal. I want to be a part of taking kids out of their house. And I don't tell her why. I don't tell her that I have this promise to an 11-year-old to keep. So the kids that I go to remove are, are really little. There's, there's a baby, a one-year-old, a two-year-old, and a six-year-old. And so that's the only reason they even let me go, is that they need extra bodies to help with all these kids. It's a warm fall day. We piled into two county-issued sedans. We headed over to a single-room occupancy hotel that was kind of right next to the freeway. Um, and when we got there, a couple police officers joined so that there were six of us all together. And I am jockeying for position, trying to get next to the social worker who's knocking on the door. But I can't. I'm, I'm kind of stuck in the back. Social worker knocks on the door and the mom answers. And as soon as the worker explains why we're there and, and that we will be taking the kids with us, um, it gets super chaotic and the kids are crying and um, screaming. The mother is yelling and it all goes really quickly. One of the other workers is saying, you know, the mom's upset, get everybody out of here, get them out of here as fast as you can. And I, you know, from the back, I'm sort of yelling, but nobody hears me over all of this sort of tumult that's going on. I never even see what happens to the six-year-old. Somebody is taking the two-year-old by the hand, someone uh, someone else is trying to give the mom paperwork, um, the cops are trying to manage sort of everybody's moving bodies and, and stay in between. In the chaos of all of this, somebody hands me the baby. And the baby is probably the only sort of calm one. And they hand him to me, and I kind of pull him in close. And, um... A worker, you know, is saying to me, like, come on, get the baby outside, we gotta go. Um, and I start I start to go, you know, sort of yell back. I said, does, uh, does the baby have a bottle? Does he have a, does he have a bottle that I can take with him? And this time the mom does hear me. And so um, she grabs some, you know, half-full bottle from the counter and passes it down the line of workers to give to me. take the baby and I take the bottle and so as I'm walking with the baby outside you know I tell him um, that I'm really sorry and that I really wanted to get him his little baby things you know I wish I'd gotten you your, your hat and your blanket and I'm really sorry I sit down on the hood of the county car with this baby, and he starts fussing. And I slow down for a second, and I really look at him, and I take this bottle that his mom gave him, and we spend a few minutes where I just feed him quietly on the hood of this car outside the hotel where he'd been living. And um, I kind of rock and hold him and he spits up 
all over my dumb work blazer that I bought to look like a real professional. And then he goes to sleep. Katie Levitt. Thank you again, Katie Levitt, for that story. And thank you to everyone out there working to keep kids safe. The original score and sound design was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Anna Sussman. Now then, what happens when two comedians each reach for the gold ring? Do they get everything they always wanted? Come on. Where's the comedy in that? Snap Judgment continues. Stay tuned. WNYC Studios. You're listening to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington. Now, did you ever have something fall out of the clear blue sky and know exactly what to do? Our next story, it's not like that at all. Snap Judgment. I saw somewhere that they were advertising for, are you single? Do you want to find love? Then you should come on Get the Hookup. Get the Hookup was a black dating show. Y'all ready to play? Let's play Get the Hookup. Yeah, a dating show. But this one had a twist. You know, it tells you that you're going to have to do a talent, you're going to have to play games, and you can find your true love. And all I saw was TV talent. Maybe this is my big break. Ayana Duki was a stand-up comic. She was the kind you'd see at an open mic, doing her set for free drinks. So when she saw the call-out... That was what I was hoping. And I was going to wow the world and do stand-up comedy on the show. After an audition, she got the call back. She would be Get the Hookup's next Bachelorette. The day of the actual show, I am super, super, super excited and nervous and anxious, but like ready to go. So the stage was extremely cheesy. There was a pseudo bar in the back and there was a bartender. They were just there tending bar to no one. And there was surprisingly a full audience of people. That wasn't the only surprise. I think I remember I was talking to another contestant, another comedian, Don P., so we were kind of sitting around just contemplating, oh, what if it's a hot girl? So we start hyping each other up, like, oh, what if the girl's hot? What if the girl's hot? I see the three bachelors sitting on stage, and the first person I noticed uh, was another stand-up comic. And then I kind of waved and got his attention, and then he saw me. So when Ayana came out, we were all like, 
Oh, okay. You know, because he was a comic, we all knew her. So the whole mystery thing went away. We're like, oh, damn it. <laughs> As I walk over the seat, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so dope. The two competed for stage time at comedy clubs. And at that moment, I realized this is the best scenario that could ever happen right now. So I say to Cena, I was like, look, and I, I whispered to him, this is what we're going to do. The producers were calling for places, but that's when Ayana sketched out a quick plan. Step one, she would choose Seton out of the three bachelors. He could do his jokes. Step two, when Seton got the option to ask her a question or see her talent, he'd choose to see her talent. That way, she'd get to do her jokes too. We can rake this game so that both of us are going to be discovered and we're going to be in Hollywood together. Places! Yeah, so as we're here and, you know, okay, guys, go back to go back to the thing. I was like, Seton, okay, cool. Remember, I'm going to choose you, me talent. And I go back to my seat like, all right, from here on out, we're good. Seton got me. And we're on in five, four, three. That's when host Russ Parr kicked things off, starting with the talent portion. The first contestant? I don't even remember this guy because he was just completely null and void to me. The other dude. After him, Mr. Smooth gets on. He came out and he did this great, like, poem. Lights on the set completely dim. There's a spotlight on me and him. And as he's reciting the poem, he's walking toward me slowly. Your hair is the sweet sound of everything. And your skin is like licking the, the fruit of our nature. I want to put you in my basket of love and we could be one. And, you know, he's, he's doing an excellent job at reciting this poem. Then he starts, like, rubbing my face and playing in my hair. All the women in the crowd, you can just hear, they're getting all excited and whatnot. I don't know. It was that deep. Russ is like, all right, bachelor number three, Seton Smith. Seton, what are you going to do for us today? Seton's like, I'm going to play the guitar. And Seton pulls a guitar out of nowhere. Immediately, I'm like, what the f- is he doing? Maybe he's trying out a new act. Maybe he's deciding to do musical comedy. So he comes over and he sits down. He looks mad official putting this guitar on. I was like, Maybe he knows how to play the guitar for real. So he starts to strum, the first strum. So I'm like, oh, okay, this sounds this sounds like music. And he strums again, and then he goes, well, you know, you know the funny thing about playing the guitar? And he just starts to talk. You know, before I even tell you about the song, and then I would try to say, <laughs> you ever think about killing yourself? Russ would be like, see, just tell the song, do the song. I'm like, well... There's a punchline there, Russ, that that no one will ever hear now. As I'm watching Seton bomb, I'm like, black people do not play with suicide. So I got to walk off stage to a pitter-patter. So when Ayanna had to choose her dream bachelor, here were her options. There was bachelor number one, or the man she couldn't remember. Then there was bachelor number two, the sexy poet. And finally, there was bachelor number three, the comedian who sucked at guitar. And comedy. And Ayana didn't really want to choose the biggest loser, but they had a deal. You know, I thought it through. I saw what the guys had to offer. 
But there was one guy that really spoke to my heart. And for that reason, I'm going to choose bachelor number three. And you could just hear. It wasn't a boo, but it was like a what? Like, uh. And I look like, oh, wow. And Russ is like, for real? Ayana took the heat. The audience thought she'd lost her mind. But Seton did ask to see her comedy. And as she started doing her set, the audience started to warm up, joke by joke. And it did well. And I felt good. And I'm standing there, and he goes, well, Seton, this lovely bachelorette has chosen you. You've seen her talent. Now, the verdict rests with you. Are you going to go with this lovely bachelorette? Or are you going to go with what's behind the curtain? Ross, we got to go to break. 90 seconds, everybody. Commercial break, I had to sit there and think, all right, do I want to go with Ayana or do I want to get what's behind the mysterious curtain? And so I remember there was a game show lady. I was like, what's behind the curtain? Is it good? She was like, I think it's good. And we're back in five, four, three. So when they came back from commercial and Seton had to make a decision, I was like, well, I'm going to choose behind the curtain. I'm like, what? I just did my stand-up, and you looked at my stand-up and goes, nah, I don't want to mess with that. Let me go ahead and holler at that curtain. Really? Like, that, that's what you did? And he looked at me, and the crowd looked at me, and they were like, what? <laughs> this loser didn't choose a girl? Fine. Get what's behind the curtain. The curtain's open. Da-da-da-da. And it's a one-year supply of passion fruit ice cream. An ice cream nobody eats. And with that... And that's a wrap. Good job, everybody. Uh, Everybody except Seaton. The filming was done. And I look at Seaton, I'm like, what is wrong with you? And Seaton acts like nothing. He's like, what? I asked, I was like, why didn't you follow the plan? He's like, I did follow the plan. I was like, you didn't follow the plan. He's like, I did follow the plan. I was like, if you followed the plan, I wouldn't have just got rejected on national TV. He's like, no, you said the plan was you choose me and then I would choose you to do comedy. You didn't tell me I had to choose you after. I was like, but that was implied. At this point, everybody's clearing out. As we're leaving, these women come up to me and they're like, girl, you crazy. Why you choose that corny dude? Why you choose him? And I'm just like, uh, I don't have a good answer. I can't be like, well, he's my friend. And we like rigged the entire show. This is not real, lady. It's TV. So I was just like, oh, I thought he was cool. Girl, you got played. He ain't even pick your ass. You let that corny dude reject you on TV. You just, I, I didn't, ma'am, I didn't let him reject me. I didn't have a choice. You should have chose number two. I would have chose bachelor number two. Ooh, girl, he was cute. That time like 15 is what I encountered on my way to get my coat. No one ever commented on my comedy. And what bothered me the most about that is he never apologized. Wait, wait, wait. So even to this day, he never apologized. Seton has yet to apologize to me for choosing ice cream over me. I'll apologize if she won't. Hey, 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 Ayana, hey, hey. <laughs> I am sorry. That was wrong. I hate you. But I feel like you, you like, you actually don't really think it's something that you need to apologize for. <laughs> he doesn't. See, I see. do. No, I see something. I do. Yeah, like you got embarrassed on TV. Okay, my bad. <laughs> 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 I mean, welcome to the club. I feel like we were all on, we were all on the boat. 
<laughs> there, you know what? What's confusing? The dude who was a corny dude on the show just won the entire show. Thank you so much to Ayana Tukey and Seton Smith. They're both comedians living in New York. We'll have links to their work at snapjudgment.org. The original score and sound design was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Liz Mack. It's about that time. And Snap us if you missed even a moment and you need your storytelling fix, we've got the medicine right here. Hours of amazing storytelling available for you. Snapjudgment.org. And if hearing Snap is not enough, we understand. Experience Snap Magic live and in person. Kansas City, Salt Lake City, Oakland. I'm talking to you. Snapjudgment.org. And let me just say this. If you haven't heard the new Snap Judgment spin-off podcast, hit podcast, Spooked, you're missing out. Amazing stories from real people battling the forces of the night. Be afraid. Spookpodcast.org. Snap was produced by the Miggity 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 Max. Give some love to the Uber producer, Mark Ristich, the conductor, Pat Masini Miller, Anna, Can't Sleep Sussman, Joe, Eats Meat Rosenberg, Liz, Sheer Sheep Mac, Wenzel to the Gorio, Shana to the Sheely, Eliza to the Smith, Leon Morimoto lifts weights. Jesus Egan collects Pokemon cards. Tail Ducat has got to catch them all. While Jasmine Aguilera only plays for money. And you may have heard from various White House sources that this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could rig up a plan with your friend to take over a TV show and turn it into your big break, only to discover that your dear friend isn't really a friend at all. And even then, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.